0: Hi everyone. this is Ryan Lewis, and welcome to another episode of Training, Underscore Data, the most rich and compelling data science podcast that's available, but also, given today's topic, the most compelling public policy <laughs> podcast. I'm really excited uh, to be discussing uh, CSIS's Gray Zone report today with some uh, special guests because as just a personal note, you know I've lived in DC. for 13 years in the first event that I ever went to in the city, I was just a new grad student, was actually a CSIS event. And so it's really cool to come full circle, to have some of their experts uh, in with us today talking about a really compelling report, which touches on an aspect of technology that to date on this episode, as well as if you follow our blog, we haven't discussed. And so for those of you who have listened to this podcast in the past, we've touched almost every different aspect of technology development from discussing the, the actual technical details of how model development or training data works. You probably know more than you want to about geospatial data analysis at this point, if you're a listener. We've also talked about business models, venture investing, and how that works in an open source market economy, as well as proprietary tools. Today, we're going to actually take a, probably a long overdue step back and say, how does how do these technologies fit into the broader geopolitical landscape, particularly one that...
1: What is the state of the art? What is the state of the possible? Um, Where is that community going? And then rolling all of that goodness up into the policy debate so that we can have more informed discussions about national security and defense.
0: Well, I think that that's a really unique perspective that we don't see a lot just in in the broader ecosystem. And I think that really manifests itself well in the report that we're going to talk about today. And so there's a lot in the gray zone report. I think you broke it up into into two different parts. And I think let's just start from the beginning for those who yeah. perhaps haven't uh, read it 16 times, like I have. Um, I highly recommend it if you're looking for something to do tonight. Uh, for all of, the, all of those who are listening, you can find the link um, in our long description uh, wherever you get your podcast. Starting from the top, like what do you mean by the gray zone, and like why did you build a report around this? Why did what was the imperative?
2: Yeah, so um, the gray zone, you know, can be many different terms are are used to describe this thing, Uh, hybrid warfare, political warfare, war by other means. Essentially, um, what we're trying to describe and kind of zone in on um, and then talk about the the gaps um, within the U.S. government approach to addressing it is um, the the area that exists uh, below the threshold of conventional warfare, but above the level of routine day-to-day statecraft. And I think what, what we have seen collectively in quite worrying ways over the last number of years is that um, rivals to the United States, such as China and Russia, and to a lesser extent, Iran and North Korea, are recognizing that they can't compete with the United States. At least for the foreseeable future, um, at that combat, you know, conventional warfare level, and that by using primarily non-military coercive tools, but also the use of proxy forces um, in coercive ways, um, that they can exact costs on, on the United States, uh, undermine our influence, um, undermine our own institutions at home. Um, and so it's it's a very dynamic and fluid environment, and the ability of these actors to deploy a a very uh, broad tool set that includes everything from um, online uh, troll farms to terrorist financing to um, investing in um, countries' infrastructure that actually has backdoor implications for for debt trap um, to make those countries beholden to those actors as well as the use of of proxy forces um, really runs the gamut Um, and I think what we also have been seeing the last number of years that's quite worrisome is that these actors are increasingly working together and learning from each other. Um, And the U.S. is largely caught on its back foot um, in trying to understand this this broad space what 30, 40 years ago yeah I think it's it's a combination of these things um you know you noted in the American experience so I think you know in terms of us being on the receiving end of, of these coercive measures um, certainly has been the case uh, for for you know over a century um, and particularly during the Cold War um, but in the United States also it has is and has been a considerable gray zone actor in terms of of leverage. these these capabilities itself. Um, But I think what we're seeing is first um, an atrophy of U.S. capabilities and um, also the ability to synchronize action across stovepipes, um, across public and private, foreign and domestic um, intel and policy, uh, which is really vital to uh, have kind of a concentrated and strategic approach to this. Um, So that's thing one. Thing two is um, that there are t- new techniques, um, in part enabled by by tech, um, but also I think changes in the international system in terms of choices the United States is deliberately making um, in terms of pulling back um, and actors seeing those vacuums open up and and pushing into them um, in in asymmetric uh, coercive ways. Um, and I think, you know, there, there's also the, the pressures here at home in terms of an, uh, domestic conversation about um, how to exercise American foreign policy abroad, um, you know, given domestic, political, and budgetary pressures at home. So into that mix, you then also have what we've described of these actors um, seizing the opportunity, developing these tools at low cost, and then using them in combination and uh, together.
0: One question that or really two questions. So first on the your point of atrophy. Like so this is clearly been a, a problem that's emerging and kind of a, a slow burn effort, if you will, something that you don't see right away and then you know, a couple years later you look yeah. and go, Wow, how did this happen? What are perhaps some of your thoughts around the the reason for that atrophy? Is it is it just because we're focused on other things and you can only focus on so many topics, or is it just the pace of change is happening so quickly? It's hard to retool organizations. What are some of your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it comes down to a question of, of prioritization. You know, the last 20 years we've been engaged in um, Iraq, Afghanistan, low-intensity conflict um, that, that's been quite consuming, um, you know, so using some of these tools but but not all. Um, so that's, that's part of the story. And then I think the last couple of years, uh, certainly in the defense space, there's been an emphasis on um, looking to build high-end capability and, and really shifting resourcing in that direction. This space, um, you know, in part resides in defense um, and requires a sharpening of some of those tools, but it's also um, requires broadening the aperture to non-military tools and also tools that are outside of the U.S. government um, in ways that um, have not been synchronized or leveraged uh, really since the Cold War. And I think exacerbating that
1: atrophy is that we are seeing threats that are increasingly operating um, across traditional threat vectors and across regional boundaries. So these are, are, are actions that are increasingly holistic across the globe. They are um, connected functionally and not necessarily regionally. So as we think about how do we address atrophy, It's not just building back up these tools and institutions. It's actually fundamentally rethinking, are they equipped to handle the threats of today, which is a a double problem in in having to tackle it. It's not just enough to rebuild um, the atrophied um, pieces of of these processes and organizations and institutions. It's really rethinking, can we address the problems of today with the institutions, even if they were at their full strength?
0: And you you mentioned uh, your comment on reengineering Sort of our our structure or business processes. You mentioned stovepipes. You know, given my background, I immediately think, all right, how does how does technology fit into this? Yep. And I, I think one of the things that you both of you've already mentioned a couple times is is that increasingly diffuse, lower cost technologies. You know, they have no conscience of their own, right? They, they can be used for good or for ill, and they certainly enable adversaries. But they also, in theory, right, could enable us to perhaps break down some of these stovepipes mm-hmm. or or help accelerate. business process change i know this is something we'll talk about a little bit later but i think one of the things at a high level that jumped out at me is in the report you're pretty clear about the role of some of these things and that's i i personally don't see as many people talking about this yet and so i'm curious was was that something that jumped right out at you guys early on or was this something that you had your end users saying hey we really have a technology issue or about how to analyze all this new information or was it something where you kind of drew that conclusion, but people weren't being very clear on it.
1: It's it's a theme that we see um, across many of these topics. So from from prior work that that we had done at CSAS on artificial intelligence and machine learning. The common themes of of getting the right workforce in place, um, getting the right technology in place to address the the challenges of today, and increasingly the speed at which these capabilities are evolving. Um, And As you you mentioned, these capabilities are are increasingly available to our adversaries, but they are also available to us here in the United States, which is a good thing. Um, But our our traditional acquisition processes, processes, our organizations are very slow to adopt. Um, and so we kind of had that, that nugget of I think this applies here going into it um, because it is a common theme appearing across, uh, across you know, the, the broader national security sector, um, even in the con- context of, of armed conflict, um, is getting the right technology at the speed of the threat uh, to, the, to
0: the right people. And I think when you, when you read this report or you just hear things like even a high-level piece on the news of some of the topics we're discussing, at least for me, my, my first thought is, "Oh my lord, what are we gonna do?" Like, what can what tools do we have at our disposal? And that's where I think, particularly in the, the current dialogue, you see a lot of the conversation fall down, where it's because it's complex, it's multifaceted, and I think, in particularly in the both in both parts, but I guess we'll focus more in the second uh, yeah. for today's conversation. I think you actually systematically lay out a a lot of different steps that at a high level have a lot of utility. So what were some of those steps in terms of saying, here are the problems, we understand this, this is gonna take a while to address. What were a couple of the, the big takeaways?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that um, sort of analogy of like, oh, my gosh, there there is so much happening on any given day, you know, across this this space. There was just the, the report this week of, you know, Russia using like an Iranian face on social media in order to manipulate um, social networks, um, particularly related to, to political campaigns here at home. Um, you know, so I, I think what was really clear to us is, you know, to this point of the U.S. being incredibly reactionary there there is actually a lot going on within the U S government and more broadly, um, here at home and abroad to try to diagnose what's happening and then to react to it. Um, but the problem is it's, it is very one-to-one X happens. What is our going to be our response to that? Or, you know, we're looking at this, you know, to Lindsay's point through the lens of a particular country or region, um, without recognizing that there, there's a broader phenomenon. So one of our big, um, Takeaways and sets of recommendations um, relates to without creating you know a whole U.S. government agency uh, to to address this. We can this rebuild is. the government <laughs> from scratch. We got time. Let's do exactly. it. Exactly. No, I mean we, again, you know, we try to be fairly pragmatic and you know politically and budgetary conscious when when we put forward recommendations, is is to really try to um, fine tune and structure existing processes within the U.S. government decision making, policy, intel, ops structure um to be able to track what is happening um, across the gray zone as a functional space um, so we mentioned you know China Russia primarily but also Iran and North Korea are the most uh, virulent actors in in this space but really in the way that post 9/11 we recognize that counterterrorism was only being looked at in particular countries or regions or counter MD was only being looked at in a stove piped way we advocate for elevated gray zone as a functional topic, transcending the government that has National Security Council level um, director attention that is able to synchronize action across the U.S. interagency. Congress has actually recognized uh, the the need to have a strategic level focus on the gray zone as a phenomenon um, in the National Security Council, Um, but to my knowledge, the administration has yet to to appoint somebody um, in that position. Um, But it's not just that one- person. What we recommend is um, a series of um, small uh, task force-like groups uh, be established to synchronize intelligence operations um, that that come from that policy direction to be able to connect into the various departments and agencies, not just defense, not just intel, but um, Treasury, um, USAID, the State Department, uh, other commerce, other tools um, in in the U.S. toolkit. um, to get everybody rowing in the same direction. Um, We also call for the reestablishment of a group that existed during the Cold War, but retooled, to Lindsay's point, for a 21st century context um, that's called the Active Measures Working Group. Um, It's essentially an an intelligence function, um, but being able to leverage some of the unique capabilities of the intelligence community to identify uh, gray zone challenges and then mobilize um, covert action to be uh, addressing them, uh, but, but closely linked into the, the overt tools that, that I've outlined.
1: We had, you know, bringing it uh, back down to the, the technology level and the intelligence community, um, you know, a few of our, our recommendations really focused on, you know, shoring up that um, research and development, both federally funded and looking into the commercial sector to see what is going on, uh, what are the proof of concepts and, and best practices there. Um, and looking at the concept of introducing a feedback mechanism into that that policy and intelligence process. So that's you know a recognition of the fact that so far we have been increasingly very reactive. Uh, we have not been driving um, the the activity forward, and it, competing in the gray zone sometimes means having to lean forward and start leading that cycle in ways that aligns with our our norms and our values here in the United States. And so it's a recognition that to successfully compete in this space, um, that that new data requires new sources, new methods, and new collection, which really brings in the role of how do we get uh, that technical capability into our organizations. And that's where we see um, a big play uh, a big player for um, you know, data visualization, um, data fusion and synthesis, and really providing mechanisms for, for analysts and, and operatives and, and policymakers to make those uncertain judgments supported through these new technical capabilities that are available. So I think there's, there's a lot of movement in um, you know inQtel and in DIU, in, in other organizations that are really looking at being that connective tissue from the traditional defense and IC players looking out into how do we get these, these new players into the national security space.
0: And then, like, to, to extend that, it's once they're in the space, how do we tune perhaps what's either in the commercial market or what's being developed natively to the specific problem at hand? And both of you highlighted really well one of the most, arguably, the most challenging thing about the operating in the gray zone generally is this sense of nuance, right? And we are essentially looking at processes and technologies to help us, if or nothing else, help us just know what, what is happening. Can we even define and measure things before we even make any type of recommendation to a, policy, uh, a policymaker? I really like the, the vernacular you used with the new order of battle, right? Essentially looking at not just our traditional signals or indicators or things like that, but thinking through essentially new dynamics that are changing how we look for signal. And I, you highlight three, right? The, certainly temporal challenges, attribution, which we see a lot in cyber, and we'll see you already hit on that, and then intent. Um, mm-hmm. Let's break down each one of those because, you know, from a technologist's perspective, the ability to address each one of those is, is are actually all kind of unique uh, questions, interconnected certainly, but very unique and also very challenging. So starting with temporal, like, What do you mean by that? And then we can talk through, like, how could maybe some emerging uh, technologies in the AI domain perhaps help address or ameliorate some of those challenges?
1: Yeah, the the temporality of the gray zone threat is, I mean, to to put it in a, um, uh, a context that is, I mean, I guess a little reductive, but it is inherently the boil the frog approach because this activity exists at a threshold that does. So that enables the policy and operational decisions as well as the ability to uh, communicate with the public and provide them that level of attribution. One challenge we see in that attribution space, though, is that traditional concepts of confidence can actually work against us because this space moves so quickly. Um, we don't often have time, particularly on on this gray zone piece, where things are moving very quickly and are are not in this um, level of military conflict, where you know reaching a ninety five to ninety nine percent confidence of you know I am really sure that it is this actor doing X activity and Y space, by the time we have reached that level of confidence, that level of attribution, they've moved on to something else. And that really contributes to this aspect of us being very reactive in this space. And so we're thinking about, you know, what are the levels of attribution that are necessary to craft an appropriate policy or operational response that allows us to now shift the cycle from a reactive cycle to a, a proactive, to really driving the driving the action forward. Um, bringing that activity out into the light, um, and and being able to respond th- uh, in the gray zone on that on that piece, um, intent is one of those that you know we is necessary to kind of get a new sense of what is the order of the battle, where is the adversary driving the action, um, and unfortunately, that is a very difficult one to find. Um, uh, concrete information around, but the good thing is that if you're looking at um, that temporal nature and the attribution piece, you can kind of close the close the space around intent and you can get a good uh, feel for, you know, what it, what is the adversary going for in this space? And that can help you then to be more proactive. So if I can close that space around intent, I can now start driving the conversation forward and driving the activity forward um, to get out ahead of
0: them. I don't think there's there's any episode we can have here where we don't talk about open source. And so I did a, a, a word search. Luckily, it's in your report, so <laughs> great. We can cover it. But in, in, in all seriousness, you highlight an important issue. So we're talking about tech, how it can help solve problems, how it can help uh, form challenges uh, uh, to us and our, to the U.S. and our allies. And you know, one of the things we've talked a lot about and done a lot of work on for the last several years is contributing to that, to the open source world in the geospatial domain. Uh, there's a lot of great use cases. A lot of ours is focusing on mapping or disaster response. And one of the things that continues uh, to su- uh, to surprise me is how uh, fast that community is uh, uh, evolving and how robust uh, some of the offerings are, both on the data set side as well as on the software side. And, you know, I look at that and I said, there's, there's a ton of benefits to this. Certainly, it helps accelerate the U.S. startup ecosystem. It can help public and private sector organizations. But it also, when you just see the speed and robustness of these solutions, you start kind of scratching your head going, well, how does this story end? And one of the things I liked is as you look at this trend, how do you see this like influencing some of your recommendations? I.e., is this something that uh, we're continuing to, to, as a country, uh, invest in and accelerate? Or is it something that we're going to maybe watch with some skepticism? Or, wh- how do you see this playing out?
2: Yeah. I mean, to, to start and then Lindsay, you should jump in. Um, you know, I think, (laughs) <laughs> there, there's an opportunity for for the US government to be forging partnerships with um, companies and actors that that are promoting this this open source uh, you know space and and developing these these types of tools that are available for everyone um, whether that's you know through, through grants through federal funding to to encourage that innovation but they'll, then also forging partnerships to try to um, you know source that capability into the government for um, specific per- purposes and I think this gets to um, one of the challenges that we highlighted in our report and a set of recommendations that that came out in terms of what is the overall narrative and, and purpose that um, the government, that other actors, stakeholders that that have um, an interest in addressing this gray zone, uh, challenge, um, how, how can they be unified, um, you know, and kind of all rowing in in the same direction, um, because there are, there is skepticism about U S government intent. Um, there, you know, y- you look at the, um, project Maven example with, with Google, um, over the last few years, just to draw out one example, um, there, there has been, um, you know, I think, a renaissance previously in public-private collaboration at the height of the Cold War, and the government just hasn't been able to make a compelling case um, at, lar- at that scale in terms of this is the challenge, this is how it impacts Americans, and as, you know, particularly American companies, or just given of the nature of the world today, how interconnected we all are, that we all have a stake in, in what is happening um, that affects not only our collective interests, but also our, our values. Um, and, and so one of the things that we try to um, strongly promote is um, the need for deepening our strategic communications and public narrative, not in like like a creepy Big Brother sort of way, but in terms of this is the the challenge. Um, These are the types of tools that we're going to use abroad to try to shape the environment, but that here at home, it's it's almost like a public awareness campaign um, in terms of what these challenges are. And this matters in terms of trying to forge um, the the types of partnerships that are going to be necessary with with the private sector or with individuals that, that are working in the open source space, not only to promote their own innovation, uh, but to try to bring some of that talent um, into the government or some of those capabilities into the government. I mean, particularly on the software side, and I'll take just a, a
1: very pragmatic approach. Um, I think they, the, we have to figure out how to keep up. Um, whether or not, uh, whether or not the the, the open source um, you know community has really sold itself to the government, the the national security enterprise has to understand that if the threats are, are moving so rapidly and they're evolving at the speed of software, um, they have to be agile. They have to be able to keep up. And that means rethinking uh, what it means to traditionally secure your systems. Um, and so from, from my experience, you know, having come up in defense R and D it has been a very interesting evolution to watch the early days um, DOD response to open source software and having to explain that just because I incorporated open source software into um, this product that we are now delivering to you, it doesn't mean it's insecure. Um, but that just that even that word of open source is used to be, well, and still is, uh, just to some extent a, a, a cause of concern and stress. Um, so there's a, a, there needs to be a recognition that, you know, there is value open does not mean it's insecure. And it also doesn't mean that just because it wasn't made by you and made by you mm-hmm. yesterday does not mean it, it doesn't have value. Um, you know, the, we're already facing a, a shortage of computer scientists and programmers um, and, and STEM talent that, you know, we can't afford to reinvent the wheel. So if there is quality out there, uh, we should absolutely be using it. Um, and I think Melissa brought up a, a great point on the idea of using that open source software as a foundation for partners um, for continuing to build alliances and to work with allies and partners. Um, because we often get asked of, you know, well, what can we do? How are we going to do data sharing and information sharing? You know, how can we all work together? Um, and I think that's actually a a very interesting idea to say, you know, building this common foundation for us to work, work work around.
0: In the, in the AI domain specifically, there has not been a shortage of discussions and opinions, a lot of opinions. I don't know if they're all of them are good, but there's a lot out there about having a much more centralized strategy. Clearly, we've had a, now the release of sort of a, an AI executive order. There's been a fair amount of discussions about retooling um, sort of a national open data strategy uh, where I guess in this case there would be the releasing of more data for training models for all different types of applications. I'm curious, given your comments about sort of creating a foundation and building partnerships, do you think those types of um, uh, policy actions are... Uh, are they kind of the right direction in terms of setting a vision or do we think maybe there's, there's still a lot more that we could be doing to actually help implement, uh, perhaps some of the visions that are stated in these, these larger policy docs.
1: Um, so I, I mean, I think about it if, if we want to roll it back down to just, you know, basic fundamentals of leadership, um, you know, a leader needs to point the direction and say, this is where we're going. So identify that, that direction for that team, um, and, and say, you know, here's the end goal this is where we're going, we're driving forward. And I do see that there is leadership on the, the strategy piece to say this is what we're prioritizing. Um, I think of all of the emerging technologies, AI is the one that at the national level um, and at the department level has gotten the most attention in terms of formalized strategies uh, and, and formalized direction. Um, so if you th- then look to the, the next level um, of leadership is to you know set the, set the conditions for success um, so that means, you know, building a culture um, that, that supports that technology development and that implementation of that strategy, uh, making sure that your people have the right tools, uh, the right techniques, they have the right skill set within their team, and then finally holding uh, holding folks accountable. So, you know, set the direction, set the course, provide the, the tools for success, and set the conditions and then hold people accountable. Um, And I so far do not think that we are doing a great job uh, within the national security enterprise um, of meeting that second criteria. You know, we love holding people accountable um, and we like writing these high-minded strategies, but when it comes to, you know, the rubber meeting the road of setting the conditions and actually implementing that, I I don't see a lot of effort. Um, And So that's really disappointing in thinking... You know, it it means focusing on the things that aren't sexy. It means, you know, looking at, you know, computer modernization and network modernization. Story
0: of my um, life right there. You know, you think, summed up 12 years. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, you know, getting the right software permissions in. Um, you know, uh, restructuring teams and organizations to meet the work needs of today instead of forcing them into these stovepipes. Um, and so I'm I'm really disheartened when I, you know, talk to folks who are, uh, in the armed services or in the civil service who are so um, just crushed by the bureaucracy and uh, by the the lack of support to really making movement on these things um, that I think we're really failing on that second part of, you know, setting the conditions so that our people can be successful.
0: And a, and a major challenge of it, too, is... Um, and we've talked about a lot about this in the past, is so much in the machine learning domain, at least for, for us and our, ex- our experience the last couple of years on the geo side, has been defined by learning as you go. So how do you know what your compute requirements are? I don't know until I run a model on the, on the data that I have. How do I know the data's any good? I don't I don't know until I do it. Because a lot of times, while the math uh, and the logic behind what's being executed has existed for decades... Uh, the implementation sometimes is first principles. It, I mean, I remember the first time we got our first GPU environment. Someone goes, "Well, how much do you need?" I go, ah, "We can estimate it, but we haven't really run it, so I can't tell you." And so that adds just an absolute compounding variable um, to our existing process. Because um, even if people want to really bring new new capability in, in whatever organization they may be it's really hard just to write a single requirement and say, thou shalt need this. You'll have this. I can write it into my budget. We're good to go. It has to be this more squishy sort of, I may need this. It may change. It may be more. It may be less. And that's, that's hard to, uh, uh, put a simple business process around.
1: I was going to say, I cannot imagine any requirements document actually getting published. How much compute
0: do you need? I don't know. I'll tell you later, (laughs) but I'm probably going to need more as many GPUs as possible. Um, (laughs) So obviously we're just we're we're just skimming the surface on this report. Um, are there any other cover key recommendations or takeaways that perhaps we didn't hit that you'd want to make sure that uh, listeners were aware of or keyed in on when they were reading it later?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one area that we've kind of touched on, but but do want to emphasize is that um, key to the strategy that we lay out is the need to to build coalitions um, across not only globally allies and partners, but also third parties um, that may not immediately be in our orbit. Um, and that includes private sector, both at here at, at home as well as well as abroad. And thinking about, um, you know, I think in the last few years there's been uh, an overemphasis on uh, sticks in the U.S. national security uh, foreign policy toolkit, but we actually have considerable inducements and incentives um, that we can offer to allies and partners. And when you think about the strategic importance of our coalitions, our allies and partners in terms of the United States having an ace- symmetric advantage. Um, and really our ability to do anything abroad depends upon these relationships. Um, it, it really then makes the case for how important it is to, to be buttressing this. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, along the lines that, that has been discussed, you know, and thinking about what are the impediments to actually working together and can we improve mechanisms to, to work through that, to have more of a coordinated, approach um, in terms of strengthening and expanding um, inducements and allies and partners uh, through trade agreements, through security cooperation, through targeted investments uh, that spur innovation both at, at home and abroad um, in complementary ways. Um, and we've already mentioned um, you know, federal research and development being a key part of that. I think w- we also call for uh, smart immigration policies um, as a lifeblood uh, here at home to to be continuing to recruit that talent uh, both into public and private sector um, and incentives for reducing societal vulnerabilities here at home. Um, One thing that unfortunately we've seen uh, continuing to repeat um, in this election cycle is the ability of actors like Russia and also increasingly um, Iran and China to exploit um, some of those social, racial, uh, socioeconomic seams here at home. So so trying to to address those holistically um, is also going to be vitally important. Yeah, just
1: to echo, I think the the role of partnerships, um, not just at the state to state level, but at the um, public private level, mm-hmm. is uh, incredibly important. Um, so many of the uh, entities that we see that are now, you know, targets or players in this gray zone space, in this hybrid space, are not the traditional actors, um, and so that means. Uh, you know, from the from the public sector, from the national security standpoint, you know, reaching out to um, private entities, to universities, to small startups, and highlighting the risks, um, and sometimes even just bringing that awareness of, you know, this is the environment you're you're working in. If you are a hypersonic startup working out of your apartment you are now at risk, um, and there are responsibilities that come with working in this space, um, you know, from being mindful of who your funders are, where are you getting your money, um, to, you know, what uh, network security risks do you have? Um, and so it's, it's really that, you know, bringing everybody into the fold, and I think uh, a lot of times in the national security space, because we, we live and breathe this every day, we think that a lot of this information is just common knowledge, um, and so we're we're seeing you know similar trends you know in uh, looking through the big research universities of how do we um, protect that the IP and not just the it IP but that 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 knowledge and that research, um, you know there's a lot of folks that this is not there everyday, and so I think it is incumbent on. Um, the, the public sector to really think about how do we reach out, how do we highlight the risks, um, how do we support those private institutions, um, but how do we also highlight the wins and show where the United States is doing well, um, where you know, the democratic norms and values that we have, I, I am biased, I, I think they work. I think that that will ultimately be our advantage um, in addition to our people. Um, and so you know, really doing a better job of shaping that narrative and building those public-private partnerships.
2: Yeah. And just, uh, you know, inspired by what Lindsay was was laying out, um, you know, I think it is worth highlighting a really effective partnership um, related to the financial sector that um, DHS has been promoting the last number of years to try to bring in um, a number of the big financial companies to actually talk amongst themselves uh, in terms of what um, cyber-related risks they are confronting. Um, and, you know, it's, it's an incremental process because you bring a bunch of companies in together. Um, they have disincentives to share information uh, as as competitors, um, but breaking beyond that in terms of um, you know, what what is a shared risk space and defining that and then what are some common playbooks um that could be developed in the event of X, Y, or Z contingency um, that could be developed together and in an ideal universe that then spins off into kind of a organic discussion or conversation that those companies then can have together um you know independent of of the u.s government so i think there's something to build on there um in in other sectors
0: well and just to just to close i'm always impressed just by the just the breadth of work that your organization does um and just within your just within your group what are uh some upcoming projects or things that uh people should be aware of that you guys are doing
1: so one, we, we have upcoming that, that I'm quite excited about. Um, so unfortunately, it won't be up on the website, um, but, but I look forward to, to engaging with the community on is uh, building a task force around technology and intelligence um, to really build upon that foundation um, that we explored in the gray zone and look forward to how emerging technologies and advanced technologies um, can be implied, applied and integrated into operations in the intelligence community. Um, and then I personally want to flip that on its head and say, you know, how does the intelligence community operate in an environment where these emerging technologies um, exist? How does that change the way we do business either uh, in a foreign country where surveillance is ubiquitous or, you know, back here at home um, where you're looking at, you know, bringing that that weak signal through the global noise? Um, so I think that's, that's, that's very impactful. Um, we are, you know, at a transition point where technology and and um, you know, connectivity is everywhere. Um, you know, identity is increasingly a a unique thing and we can't hide in the ways we used to be able to hide. Mm. Um, so I think that'll be a a fun one I'm looking forward to. Um, as always, I encourage, um, following our work on um, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, you know, we are continually, uh, writing on this topic, um, at the nexus of defense and technology. So I encourage uh, everyone to, to follow that through CSIS.
0: Well, uh, uh, Melissa, Lindsay, I really appreciate your time. Keep up the great work. And everyone, uh, take care. Thanks.
2: Great. Thanks so much.
0: Rule number 17. Play like a badge master today. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to hear more episodes or be kept up to date, When we release a new show, please make sure to subscribe to Training Data wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to find out more information and links to the different sites and data sets and presentations and all the different content that we discussed today, you can find more at CosmicWorks.org, that's Cosmic with a Q, Spacenet.ai, and our blog, The Downlink. that's also with a Q on Medium. As you're seeing here, we like the letter Q music was provided by the dmv zone and for those of you not in the dmv that is the dc maryland virginia area by redline addiction uh, a big thank you to Kristen zender and carrie sassine from Ikitel's marketing group also a shout out to hardcast media uh, for serving as our studio thanks for listening and take care